From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome, sports fans. Welcome, statistics fans. Welcome, business fans. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, the show where all three of my favorite topics collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics. I'm joined today by my co-host, Professor of Statistics, Adi Weiner, Professor of Statistics, Shane Jensen, some combination of the three of us, and our other co-host, Cade Matthew, here every week on the podcast edition of Wharton Moneyball. We're going to be talking about everything in our first quarter. We've been doing, at least for the last two and a half years, doing a partial or full COVID segment. We'll then be having an open segments in two and three to talk about what's going on in sports, and there's a lot going on in sports. And then we have our interview segment in segment four. So, guys, how are you guys doing today? Pretty good. How are you guys doing? Good, good. Glad to hear everyone's doing well. You know, this week, you know, there actually is some stuff going on in COVID. The last few weeks, things have been a little quiet. Although, on the other hand, we've always found some interesting statistical topics around uh, COVID to talk about. I know, Adi, you had some things today to bring to our audience here on Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM. So uh, why don't I start with you and then we'll open it up. Sure. Uh, So some weeks ago, Pfizer had announced that it has uh, nearing the end of its a trial of the COVID vaccine on under five-year-olds. And remember, all of us were, were scratching our head because they had only had 10 cases of COVID and that, and that was too small to make an efficacy recommendation. They never ended up with more, yet the FDA and the CDC have now approved and, and are recommending the shot for under five-year-olds. The shots, actually, it's, they're actually quite specific that it is a three-shot re- regimen for Pfizer and a two-shot regimen for Moderna. So could you I also say, Adi, how much, yeah. could you say the dosage level compared to the dosage level that we as adults would have gotten? It's basically a 50% dose on each shot? It's, it's much, much smaller. I don't know exactly oh. what the numbers are, but they're much, much smaller. Obviously, they're, these are very small uh, human beings relative to adults. So, so the so dosage is a lot less. And that was the question, whether or not lower dosages would be effective. So I want to, what, the reason why I want to unpack this is that it's actually very interesting. There's some very interesting statistical issues here, as well as some very interesting kind of regulatory issues that maybe we can get someone on to explore more deeply. But fundamentally, the primary endpoint, and when you do a statistical analysis or any experiment, you have to design before you take the data an, an endpoint. And this is really important. All Just to be clear, this. if, if yeah. you call the word endpoint, like, would it be any different than in the field of marketing, like my home field of business, you might call it the dependent variable or the end of time of the study in your case? So could you be yeah, just more so, specific about so what you mean here? It's, it's essentially what we would call the response, which you would call the dependent. But what attribute of the dis- response is going to be the, the benchmark that you're trying to beat? Or, and so in, a, in an experiment, you have a treatment group, you have a control group, and you typically uh, uh, work at, at your analysis, some attribute of the treatment group compared to the control group at a certain time has to hit some sort of standard. So traditionally, for example, with vaccine efficacy, 50% effectiveness was always the benchmark, the endpoint. The treatment had to have a 50% lower something than the control in order to get approval. So, so Adi, before, so, yes, before you, you go on to what they actually, yeah, before you go on to what they actually did, what would stop someone since we're, you know, we're Moneyball here, we're a statistic show. What would stop someone from having a multivariate endpoint? Like you might have uh, 
for example, cases, you might have hospitalizations, you might have deaths. Um, there's going to be some level of efficacy against maybe all of them. Um, and then you put some weighted average. Now, where those weights come from is always the challenge in multivariate types of studies. But what would stop someone from doing that? And would you not recommend that before you get into what they actually found or didn't find? What would stop someone from doing that other yeah. than maybe the subjectivity with the weights? Or, okay, or, or so from separately, I guess. It's like You're almost giving me a softball. Yeah, or as Shane said, separately okay, so analyzing the, each they, outcome. They usually have, right. So typically what they have is, of course, the set of primary and there are secondary outcomes. So you definitely have, have uh, you outline first and seconds. And then within the primary, you can have more than one outcome. But here's the issue, and we all know it. Statistical significance is a lot easier to achieve with the maximum of many tests than it is on one. And so to properly adjust for the fact that you're doing many out endpoints, you have to adjust statistical significance with some sort of correction for, as we all call, multiple comparisons. So typically, so it's actually thought of many studies do have multiple endpoints, but the analysis generally has to reflect that, that you have multiple endpoints. And so you just can't pick the one with the lowest p-value and declare that one. No, no, no. Why, no, no. why wouldn't? So you have to just, adjust for that. So. No, 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 this is a great discussion. As you know, um, while, you know, I'm a Bayesian, I do understand that, trust me, I understand the concept of a p-value, but why do we even have yeah. to kind of declare statistical significance or victory? Why don't yeah. we just have multiple outcomes? Or, we'll just report, which, one second, Shane, we'll just report what strength of evidence we find in terms of either an effect size or a p-value, or, you know, it can be as simple as a adjusted mean difference between the two groups, and we'll let people decide what, you know, is it efficacious or not based on the outcome of interest. So sorry, Shane, I just didn't mean to interrupt. No, and I, I want to kind of kind of fold in here, not just kind of what we consider the, the usual COVID outcomes, but also presumably these trials are also testing for side effects or kind of negative unanticipated outcomes. And in that case, same sort of thing. I mean, you do have a multiple testing problem, but there you're trying to really just kind of explore, make sure that there's not a significant like difference in some in some side effect. And I guess the more, you know, you test of those, the more one could just kind of pop spuriously. But uh, but I, I kind of feel like you don't have, you know, that there's not much as so, much of a multiple multiple testing issue there. Well, you know, the issue, I mean, one of the things is that the, is that the entities that run the studies often do the analysis. Um, as well. And that's part of it. When What you're describing is we'll just run all the numbers and then let the FDA work it out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or we'll just provide what we'll do. What we'll do as scientists is we'll just provide the strength of evidence. We'll provide the data and the strength of evidence and let let the right. policymakers decide. But it is common on, practice. It is or, common or, practice. Or another thing, I mean, with the side effects, for example, like with COVID, with a COVID outcome, one of the problems with the la that 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 you, well, this lack of power that we're discovering in all these studies is because it's actually you know chances of getting exposed to COVID naturally are low, and so you don't necessarily have a lot of cases you know in either the you know the sort of like treated and untreated group. Whereas if you're checking for some relatively common side effects, then you don't you don't have as much of a power issue there, I think, comparatively. But Adi, let's let you finish and also tell us what they found or what why this may, why this caught your eye. Yeah, so actually, Shane, just to touch on a critical, critical issue. So I'll tell you what they did. The primary endpoint had nothing to do with effectiveness. Just you have to let that sink in for a minute. It had nothing to do with effectiveness. And the reason for that was they anticipated in the age of Omicron that uh, there wouldn't be a difference in infection rates, which is common, 
And the children are so rarely seriously ill that they had a power problem. They knew that if they only had 3,000 subjects and actually only ended up with about 1,000, it would be too unlikely, there'd be too few severe cases to actually measure a significant difference between the treatment and control. They knew that in advance. And of course, it, now post hoc, there was too few cases to make a statistical assessment between ineffectiveness. There ultimately were absolutely too few cases. So when you hear them say, and someone has written that it's 80% effective, the difference was, first of all, they treated the endpoint as after the third, third dose, not after the first, after the second, for which there actually were many, um, there were many cases and the treatment wasn't any better than the control. And, and, and sometimes they're actually worse. Um, and, and that's just a number of cases. So it didn't look like it was doing anything. So they went to the third dose. And after the third dose, there were only exactly 10 cases total, too few to make any, any distinction. Three were in the, in the um, treatment group and seven in the control. When you adjust for the total number of days and, and numbers of people, that worked out to about 80% confidence interval was about minus 200 to plus 300. I mean, it was just gigantic. The effect, there was essentially no statistical significant difference because there were too few cases. So Adi, let so me, let me unpack. Efficacy was never a primary endpoint. No, no, I just wanted to unpack what you said yeah. just for our listeners here. So let's start with some good news about what was done. And I don't want to say, let's call it good news. We as statisticians, one of our jobs, important jobs, is the design of studies. And the fact that in some sense, we do these calculations all the time, we will never have enough sample size at this expected rate to actually have enough power to detect the difference. So the good news, let me start with the good news. The good news is they recognized that that endpoint was never going to have enough sample size, not, I mean, unless you had possibly millions, that was never going to happen. So that's in some sense, from a statistician grade perspective, that part is certainly reasonable. I think the part that what you've now said that is a little bit concerning is the following, um, is that uh, they didn't do it until after the third, which is partly concerning. And I think the second thing is that they didn't actually specifically choose. Um, they reported a point estimate of something without reflecting the uncertainty. So th those are great questions. And there, there's this, in fact, if you go on and listen to what people are saying, they're like, my God, we didn't show effic efficacy. That was never the primary endpoint. The primary endpoint was what they call an immune, an immune response. And they used a method which they call immunobridging. And this is something beyond our expertise. And essentially what they were saying was, if they could show that in children they got the same response to antibody response and other measurements they made that they were seeing in young adults and adults, they would declare it to be effective. And this is really rather concerning as a, to a statistician that that was essentially the measure of effectiveness that they used, this immunobridging strategy. The secondary other things they were looking for, of course, were side effects, and those were very infrequent. The reason why I argue that that's a real issue, because if the eff efficacy is hard to establish and, and the rate of severe illness is so low, severe side effects are also very low, but they might be the same order of magnitude of, of the illness itself. And so it still asks you um, to wonder maybe or this is a, not necessarily a good idea. Uh, let me just say it, it's very interesting. Um, it is interesting that they've chosen, uh, let's call it an intermediary outcome. And um, 
you know, I would have more of a problem with it if it was possibly decided after the fact, which is we didn't get the result that we thought we'd get. And therefore, we've now changed the outcome. And this is why, by the way, in my field of marketing we've, and psychology, we've all heard of the challenges of replication, everything. This is why people register studies in advance, which means you have to say exactly who your target population is, what the sample size is, what's the dependent variable of interest and stuff. And if this was a retrospective oh we've got this study oh let's by the way also measure this immunity level in people and antibodies that seems more troubling than just if you'd like that they're using an intermediate outcome because in some sense that's all they have well i mean yeah i I think so i mean i think we have to kind of have a little bit of understanding of kind of the medical process in the sense that you could imagine like say for example clinical trial that's been running for several several months you know to test efficacy in covid or whatever and all of a sudden like from some other observational data cuz we're you know in the middle of a pandemic uh you know three or four kind of other either intermediary outcomes or side effects sort of like pop up as sort of like important or related to some some similar vaccine or some similar drug out there i think we would at least want to be able to have the ability to test those as well, even though they necessarily they were they were kind of unanticipated at the study design study registration level. I mean, I think we should be you know there there is extra caution to significance you know establishing significance for those things that weren't registered ahead of time. But I think we you know I, I don't want to be in a world where we can't sort of update you know, our hypotheses somewhere along the way. I just think you want to kind of acknowledge that in your uncertainty kind of estimation and inference. Or just, or as you're saying, as Adi said to begin with, just recognize, just say what we're measuring is not the, here's the outcome we're actually measuring. Don't just give us a a one bullet point headline that says certain amount of effectiveness. Effectiveness of what, to whom, after how many shots, after how long. I mean, let just just tell us exactly what it is you're measuring. And then we can either say that's interesting, uninteresting, but at least we have the ability to yeah. critique it because I, I mean, it's I at least detailed acknowledge- enough. I, I think an acknowledgement of that is the minimal standard. An adjustment, right. some kind of intelligent adjustment for that is an even higher standard. The trouble is it's like, you know, you do this study and maybe it even is, an acknowledgement somewhere in like the footnotes or in the, you know, in the supplementary materials. And then uh, the media takes hold of your study. And of course the media's entire enterprise is to boil that study down to a single bullet point. It's unlikely that acknowledgement makes it into the bullet point. So guys, we're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics. I'm here with my co-host today, professor of statistics, Shane Jensen, professor of statistics, Adi Weiner. Uh, if you ever want to join us, since this is the podcast edition, you can always email us at moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. That's moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We love emails. We answer them during the show. And of course, we're a great follow on Twitter at W Moneyball. That's at W Moneyball. Adi, I know you had some other thoughts about this and maybe other things going on. Maybe you were the one that put into our rundown about the Paxlovid effectiveness study. I'd love to talk about that too. Um, I, I, I read that, but I didn't put it in. So uh, maybe someone else wants to talk about that one. But I will follow up with, with the final thing you said, um, Shane, is that effectiveness is really not what was studied. But unfortunately, the message that's coming out is safe and effective. And safe, a yes. But only, I would say, in a relative sense, if there's an issue there, it's really, really rare. But so is issues very rare to get a severe problem from COVID. Effectiveness, that is something that is far from established. um, And it's used entirely in this immunobridging 
kind of framework that, that most people just don't don't understand. It remains to be seen how many small children will actually take this vi- this vaccine. Only 30% of eligible 5 to 11-year-olds took it. I would guess something like 15% of the under well, your, your guess. Well, there's a survey that was done, Adi, just so you know. The estimate right now is 18%, so your guess is actually pretty good. Um, but my comment is, is that let's assume that the people that are making the decisions to approve this want the best for our population. Of course they do. And so I'm, I'm taking that as a given. Okay. Let's think about as statisticians. So what could be the rationale then, if it's not directly a measure of effectiveness, what could be the rationale for approving this? So let me ask just a sequence of questions. Is it possible that there are other populations of people not under five that will, in an ancillary way, benefit from this population being vaccinated. I'm just trying to uh, I'm just trying to understand if this wasn't effective directly. You know, it's not saying it's not effective. It may be effective. It's a low. There's no evidence yet of a high level of effectiveness. So are there other populations that might benefit the parents of the kids because they want to, you know, they want to basically get back to the regular lives and feel sort of, you know, insecure about doing that while their kids unvaccinated, even with the ample evidence that it's not a particular like that the risk levels are not high for that particular age bracket. I think a lot of parents just want to get their kids vaccinated so they can kind of feel like their whole family's protected. I think that's I think that's the main push for this as far as I can read. But I don't know. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, Shane. But parents want this because they're want to get back to normal. And they've been they've been feeling that they need something to allow them to get back to normal. Yeah. The response to that is a very simple one, that they should have been back to normal anyway. And that this isn't yeah. changing anything. They, that's something that you should have been doing. And that many, many people are waiting for something um, that is really not necessary and that they shouldn't have waited for. Um, and, but it's very hard to get people to see that. Very, very hard. Well, let me and ask. Let me, throw out, that, let, me, yeah, let me throw out another let, theory let, then. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Just finish one thing. I just want to finish one thing. Yeah. One of the things that was observed, of course, is more hospitalizations in little kids with the Omicron variant than in, than in the previous. Not at a higher rate. But because there were so many more infections with Omicron, Omicron, we saw more hospitalizations, still very few deaths. And they are making an argument that because they saw the immune abridging, the high antibody response, they are predicting, even though they couldn't measure it, there's a strong prediction that it will lower the already low, but always could get lower, rate of severe illness in small children. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that kind of Omicron trend, that could very much be tied to something we've observed in past shows that the, the distinction between hospitalized with COVID versus hospitalized by COVID, basically, I think, you know, again, the higher infection rates of Omicron, it probably it probably wasn't, you know, hitting the kids any harder. They just, you know, like in terms of like actual health outcomes, they were just there's just more infections being kind of detected because, you know, a hospital is a great way to get a test. You, you know, you, everybody gets tested going to the hospital. So let me ask another let me ask another then related question, which is, is it possible that while again, we're not saying that the vaccine is not effective for children under five. All we're saying is there's yet to be evidence presented that would show statistically significant effectiveness. Mm-hmm. So what if another ancillary benefit was it relates exactly to Shane's point, which is let's imagine this lowered the total amount of covid out there. And therefore, whatever the next wave of COVID is going to be might be less. 
Um, there's less chance for mutation with less amount of COVID out there. And so while we can't necessarily measure a short-term benefit, it's hard to imagine there not being a longer-term benefit of there just being less COVID. I think you, yeah, you summed up I, one of the reasons why it's been approved. Yeah, no, I, I mean, like I kind of, you know, the only thing that, I mean, I, I don't disagree with that, that logic flow is, you know, pretty unassailable, but I, but, but the only skepticism I have is I think, you know, there's enough kind of pockets of society, you know, where the vaccination is not really going to, you know, is, is just not going to catch on. So I, I think we're still going to have these sort of like kind of isolate almost like, you know, I, I don't know, like COVID sort of substrates for like mutation anyway. I don't, I don't think we're, I don't think we're going to irreparably damage or, or, or restrict COVID's ability to mutate into some new strain, just because I think there's going to be big parts, you know, relative, you know, pockets of the population that still aren't going to be, you know, immune. I think also the, the challenge that we face here is that, as you said, I think maybe what you're saying, Shane, is that the, the relative effect size of this is unlikely to be significant enough to actually have a big impact. And it's not saying it couldn't be impactful. It's just, as you said, when we think of the sources of, let's call it the cause of total amount of infection, you're not going to stop the people. There's a large fraction of people that are just not going to get vaccinated no matter what. Mm-hmm. There's a large fraction of people, by the way, that have been vaccinated, but might just say, I'm done with this. I'm not getting vaccinated more. And they're immune immunization status may change from protected to unprotected. And so as you're pointing out, you know, the Yiddish term, this may be bupkis in the total amount. It's conceptually, of course, this is the right thing to do. But is it, you know, of the 10 things that we could do as a society to lower the total amount of COVID, this may be number 10. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I, 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 I would, I would agree with that assessment. I agree too. So let me ask you guys, um, just in terms of putting on your prediction hats. So the I went onto the CDC website, and as I do every week uh, when we're taping our show, and I noticed that the average number of deaths per day is down a smidge. Look, every death matters. So I'm I'm happy if it's down one on average per day. That would be good for me. Um, it's down to about 266 deaths per day now on average. It was in the 270s. It was in the low 300s, and it was in the 330s. But we haven't seen a dramatic drop. Do you think if, if you had to predict, let's call it the lower bound, I think we all agree if there's another strain, this can go up. There's no question the number of deaths could go up is about 200 to 250 deaths per day. Is that really probably as low as we're going to get as long as coronavirus is around? In other words, on average, so, so we're talking somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 100,000 deaths per year from COVID-related illnesses, does that seem like if, if I had to ask you to give me a, an estimate over the next five years, are we talking somewhere in the fifty to 100,000 range, which puts it comparable, as Adi has been telling us for two and a half years, to a pretty severe flu season, but not the worst flu season that's ever happened in mankind? Is that your guess? Let me start with you, Adi, and then we'll go to Shane. Uh, I think for the first couple of years, 50 to 100,000, and I think eventually it'll slide down to under 50, which is more typical for a flu season. But I think it's going to take some years until enough people have had it and had it and that and it just and it evolves to be a, 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 as expected. Who knows? Um, so I would guess that it would be a couple of years before it gets to that low level, but eventually it will. And that's just my forecast. 
And and Shane, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think so too. I I I I I would kind of agree with that. I mean, I, I think you know, I mean, we you know, our our, our ability to you know, again, I, I think there is going to be kind of a cap on how much vaccines sort of like affect basically there can be at, at kind of like bringing down that number. But there's not necessarily an, a lower bound on like how we can do with other medical, like you know, the actual treatment of COVID will presumably only get better over the next few years. So, I mean, yeah, I, I guess I, if I had to forecast, I would kind of, I, I you know, I'm, I'm quite optimistic that in like five years time, it will be kind of at the level of flu. Well, maybe just in the last minute we have on our Q1 COVID segment, we could talk about that. So um, I looked at the Paxlovid effectiveness study that just came out. And what was interesting about that study is, again, Paxlovid works. It's not actually what the study says. What the study says is that it works for high-risk patients, but it's not obvious that for lower-risk patients, there's that much of an effectiveness. So we would call this non-constant effectiveness or a heterogeneous treatment effect if we want. And what's actually, let me say the good news and the bad news. Let's start with the good news. It may actually be more effective than the average they're reporting for the people that are in high risk. The bad news is that for people that aren't in high risk, there may actually, this may not be, to your point, Shane, this may not be the therapeutic we've all been waiting for, at least for people in a non-high risk status. But I'd love to hear your thoughts. Shane, maybe I'll start with you at this time and then Adi. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I don't necessarily have you know, much to add on top of that. Sorry. But like, I, I mean, I do kind of, I, I do kind of feel like, you know, this is a, you know, I, I've been mostly kind of buoyed by good news sort of coming out of the sort of therapy kind of treatment side of things, as opposed to kind of the vaccine mass, you know, the kind of prevention side of things. I think we, as I sort of feel like we're really kind of hitting sort of almost like a capacity or maybe like a boundary on how much, you know, extra effective that can be, but like these therapies, you know, I think hold a lot of promise. Adi, any thoughts on the Paxlovid and the kind of mixed pop or the heterogeneous treatment effects of them? Well, I think we expected a heterogeneous treatment effect even from the beginning. As usual, this isn't a randomized controlled trial. Um, the randomized controlled trials should, were really effective. Um, and this, of course, is out in the wild. And that always makes me wonder what kind of confounding is going on and, and how did it's adjusted. And, and, uh, and of course, some people didn't, didn't accepted it and others who didn't. There's all kinds of selection bias here. Um, and, and then finally, reality always is that the real world tends to show less effectiveness than the, than the, the trials. Yeah, no. And I mean, I think, I think we have to kind of almost be content with things like heterogeneous treatment effects, because I mean, I mean, it's COVID, the, the treatment, the, the effect of COVID is so like idiosyncratic and personal as well. Why would, you know, why wouldn't I, res you know, kind of like how medicine helps our response be? I don't know. By the way, Shane, I'm pretty sure it's a tautology that every single therapeutic has heterogeneous treatment yeah. effects, by the way. I think that's a tautology. But either way, that's been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. And <laughs> think about it, listeners out there. We got to talk about power, power and sample size. We got talked about uh, endpoints and dependent and the appropriateness of dependent variables. We got to talk about p-values. We got to talk about heterogeneous treatment effects only here on Wharton Moneyball. So that means stay with us. Join us after the break. We'll be talking about sports next in Q2. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. 
Welcome back to Q2 of Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM 132, our podcast edition. This is Eric Bradley, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my two co-hosts, Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen and Professor of Statistics Adi Weiner. Some combination of the three of us and Cade Massey are here every week on the podcast edition of Wharton Moneyball. And the nice thing is you too can become part of the conversation. As I said, you can email us at moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu, or you can follow us. I think we're a great follow on Twitter at WMoneyball. So guys, we spent the first quarter of our show, as we have been, talking about COVID, but these are general statistical principles, but now it's time for us to get down to sports. So I want to start with golf, just because golf is on a lot of our minds. We obviously had a guest last week talking to us about golf as well. Um, For all of you that don't watch as much golf as I do, um, uh, Matt Fitzpatrick from England won the U.S. Open uh, this weekend. He won by one shot over Will Zalatoris and our hottest golfer in the world, Scotty Scheffler. He only came in second at the U.S. Open by a stroke. But the thing I wanted to bring up to you guys is that I was watching the live odds as the golf tournament was going on, especially in the fourth round. What's interesting is in the final round, within the last 12 holes, both Zalatoris and Scheffler had two-shot leads. Neither one of them won. Two-shot lead with like 10 holes to play. Both of them did, and with less than that number of holes to play. And the odds had them at about 80 to 85% to win the tournament. And maybe that's right. Maybe that is, that is how often you win a tournament with a two-shot lead with seven I'm or surprised. eight holes to play. I mean, I, mean so I, I don't mean to interrupt, but I, I, my reaction is that sounds hot. Even for like 10 holes left, two-shot lead, that seems high for, you know, but... Of course, it's also a factor of how many are chasing you, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, it was clear, by the way. It's a good point, Shane. Let me just be clear to everybody. It was clear probably eight or nine holes into the round. It was a three-person race. Right. There okay. was At one yeah. point, John Rahm was sort of in there, but not really. And McElroy, maybe. And then Morikawa did well at the end, et cetera. But bench, basically, it was going to be Fitzpatrick, Salatoris, or Scheffler winning the U.S. Open. And Fitzpatrick won the U.S. Open. Uh, Zalatoris made a great charge at the end, missed a putt on 18 that would have sent it to a playoff. I'm sure the networks were actually sort of happy because in case everybody doesn't know, every one of the majors has a different playoff routine. Like the British Open has a three-hole composite. The Masters is sudden death. PGA is actually, I think, three-hole composite also. The U.S. Open is 18 holes. (laughs) So they would have come back the next day and they would have had to play 18 holes kind of winner take all. Yeah, Adi? I want to ask a statistical question about a sport I don't know as much about as I should. And, I, and it's a question I can answer myself because I have the data, but I don't know it. What is the standard deviation on the difference in points uh, in points scores uh, in, between two golfers per hole? So in other words, they're each expected to be par. So with high probability, they won't change, but one could go up and one could birdie, one could not. So the difference in numbers are probably like minus two, minus one, zero, plus one, Plus two, those are the, the that's the those are the highly probable outcomes. Obviously, they could be bigger ones. So, what is the standard deviation? So, I just want to get a sense of how big minus two is at for well, ten holes. Is, uh, here, here's a question: Is uh, do about sixty six percent or so uh, par on any given hole? I mean, it'd be nice be if sixty six percent or so par at every given hole, and ninety five percent or so uh, either only birdie, bogeyed, or par, because that would give us a standard deviation of about one stroke, right? That would be around one stroke, in which case the, the, the square root of 10 times one 
would be, you'd expect over three, just natural standard deviation over 10 holes, in which case two, not very far. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. just my so, simple way of thinking about it. I don't know the data, Shane, but I would not be surprised if that was the number. I would not be surprised if roughly two-thirds of players par every hole. Um, I would say there's probably – it's a skewed distribution for sure. I yeah, think there's a lot more plus ones. Of course, the holes aren't ones. IID as we're yeah. kind of doing in this calculation. I, I know, no, but no, no, no. This is not a bad rough approximation. I think yeah. there's uh, many more and, – and what Adi's done, by the way, just for our listeners out there, if there's a standard deviation of one on every hole, there's 10 holes um, – so, well, if the standard deviation is one, the good news is the variance is one. You add it up. So now you have 10 times the amount of variance in 10 holes that you have, and you take the square root of that, which is where Adi got the square root of 10 from. And so that's why he's making an assumption, by the way, let's be clear. He's making an assumption of independence across the holes. He's also making an assumption of what we call IID, which is both independence and, if you'd like, identicalness of the holes, yeah. which, you know, the finishing holes may be harder. But let's just also be clear. What you've done, Adi, is, is really smart. It, it's a, it's, if it's not a very good first-order approximation, it's at least a very good first-order approximation <laughs> to what's actually happening. And so, yeah, could you build a fancy statistical model? You absolutely could. But my guess is your standard error calculation for 10 holes is correct plus or minus 20 percent well what it basically shows is that two two stroke lead is not that big and that's why i thought 85 percent is uh yeah. is a and, and the very although, fact that it, i i think you mentioned that both both of the leaders by two strokes went up to 80 percent chance of winning and neither of them ultimately won so that itself suggests it's not a particularly well calibrated probability calculation there well Either way, I thought that was interesting going on with golf. And then just the other thing we've been talking about, which is, you know, there is a somewhat statistical aspect of it. And, you know, um, last week's guest, um, and, and Matt will put into the rundown exactly again who that was, um, I got an answer that I didn't quite like, and it's been sort of bothering me all week um, about it, which is, you know, one of the things with, yeah, Dan Rappaport, thank you, Matt, um, was last week I said, so wait a second, you know, we've got the live tour, which is, you know, now I, I don't know if you guys saw it today, but Brooks Kepka is leaving the PGA for the uh, Live Tour. His brother, Chase, who's not really a, you know, he's a pro golfer, but not a top pro golfer, um, had already moved. Now Brooks Kepka's moving. But here's my question. The question I asked Dan last week. When people say the Live Tour is like the Junior Tour, it won't be as good golf, etc., I still don't see why, as statisticians, we can't measure this. Like, there has to be ways to adjust for the difficulty of a course. There has to be ways to adjust for the length of the course. Like, I have to have – I assume there is a way to say someone shooting a 72 on this course and someone shooting a 71 on this course are roughly equivalent. I, I know there has to be the equivalent of something like an ELO rating or something for golfers. And so we, whether it's through simulation or mathematics, it seems like we could compute the probability that someone would win if they were in this field or that field. That seems – this seems to be to be – actually a well-defined statistical problem i didn't say a trivial one but at least a well-defined statistical problem but let's start with you shane am i nuts that this seems like a well-defined problem that should be answerable like how good is the live tour like how much you know what's the probability that these people would win if they were in the field with the regular pga golfers 
Yeah, no, and I mean, I mean, honestly, like, I mean, think about like, yeah, I mean, this we we don't want to wait this long, but let's say the live tour really takes off and becomes kind of a, you know, there's just now two major golf tours that we kind of track versus one, we're still going to have them playing each other in things like the majors or whatever other kind of invitational type tournaments are thrown up. So we are going to get that kind of head to head calibration of where the best golfers are. I agree that even before we get to that point, we should be able to calculate some kind of course and competition sort of stat normed kind of performance even now. I will sort of say, since we're talking about the live tour, one aspect that it's introduced, I think is really cool that I would like, you know, I mean, regardless of what happens with the PGA to maybe think about picking up is, is this kind of team aspect to this, where it's still an individual competition, but you have these kind of teams, you know, that gives you kind of incentive to sort of track beyond, because I think in our, in, in all golf tournaments, one prop reason that it's a little bit stale or, or we focus so much just on the top performers is honestly, it's only, we're only tracking like, you know, the top five, six, seven people, especially come Sunday. Cause as you sort of said, it comes down to like, you know, only four or five golfers are maybe in, in, in the, in the race to win it all. This gives us an opportunity to kind of look at the entire field and actually track the entire field through a full through, you know, I guess it's only three days they play, but there's no cuts. So there's like, you know, it's not like you're kind of slough. You're, you're not removing, you're not attritioning out the bad. No, but that's what I was going to comment on Shane. And this is the classic challenge is that in golf tournaments or any type of tournament design where there's attrition, having teams, is difficult because yeah. I may be assigned on a team and the other three players in my team didn't make the cut. Yeah, and yeah. so now does that mean like I can't win the team aspect because, and remember the live tour has no cut. So what if a team's a team, you can easily compare scores. I think the other thing they've done well, which also from a statistical perspective, we should like it's one less variable to control for, which is weather, which is huge in golf is the concept of a shotgun start. That is going to lower, just to be clear to everyone, that means everybody starts at the same time, not five or six hours difference between one player and another, and the wind picks up, and Adi's not playing yet. And, and so I'm playing under heavy wind and Adi's playing under light wind. No, we're both playing under the same amount of wind because we're all playing the same four and a half to five hours in a day. I think from a statistical design perspective, I understand why the, the TV market doesn't want it because they want to show the leaders coming into the finish line and knowing exactly who to focus on as you said Shane but I think from a statistical design perspective there's something to like about it Adi what, no, what's I your think- thought uh, sorry go ahead uh, Shane why don't you finish up well, I, I would just sort of say, yeah, I mean, I agree. It's not going to completely remove the variance because they're still starting in different holes at different times. But I mean, I do think, I, I think it's great. And I mean, we all watch enough golf to know that there's enough doubt. Like, you know, you, you might have less like, you know, kind of time just watching them set up a shot or something like that. But there's enough time to cut between players, even with a shotgun design that, you know, you could basically follow almost everybody. So I just have two quick comments. First of all, I think uh, Shane's assessment that you could probably rate these two tours and, and do a lot because you have a lot of data, a lot of different golfers, a lot of data on the golfer, golfers. But my one question for you, Eric, is how do they how do they execute a shotgun start on a single course? Well, they actually have – the good news is for the live tour, I believe it's 48, maybe it's 54. Um, the only reason fi- – I, I, let's pretend it was 54 for a second, Adi. It means 54 divided by 18 is a good number. So that means three golfers start on each hole, 
And, mm. you know, you might start on 12. I might start on yeah. four. And so that's it. And then we just play until okay. we're done. You just circle yeah. around. And then we're all playing under the same weather. We're all playing with the same number of people. We're all playing the same time of day, et cetera, et cetera. And so it any benefits. Theoretically last what a golf round of golf lasts for, you know, mortals, which is, yeah, four to five hours at most. Also, Adi, something, this is another, this is Adi, it would lead to interesting data. Like you've been a big proponent. You've written some wonderful statistical papers on the effect of sleep. So now let's imagine one golfer said, I didn't do as well in the tournament because I had to get up at 6 a.m. for my 7.30 start time Mm -hmm. and some other golf. Well, that's gone now. Everybody's starting at the same time. So if rest, whatever role rest might play or sleep might play, I'm not saying it's a perfect solution and it takes away, as Shane said, all of the variation, but it potentially takes off another important part of variation. So from that point of view, I like it. I just didn't, again, I was just reacting to all week long. I don't want to say it was bothering me. I loved the interview last week with Dan Rappaport, I just didn't necessarily buy into the premise that with an overlapping design, as Shane said, of players playing the same tournaments and they all play the same courses at times, that we couldn't do something to adjust and say, how good really is the quality of the golf of the live Mm -hmm. tour compared to the PGA tour? So that was golf, guys. It was very interesting. We're going to see what happens. I think there's going to be more defections. And as Shane said, we may end up with uh, two tours. And look, they haven't announced the number. But my guess is Brooks Kepka had 200 million reasons uh, to uh, move over to the Live Tour. And, um, you know, and, and in his case, uh, he hasn't been playing well lately. And also in his case, he's got four majors. So what will be very interesting is, does he get into the PGA Tour Hall of Fame um, if he ends up being banned? Like, does this end up being like a Pete Rose situation where live golfers can't make the Hall of Fame? Oh, That'll be a... They'd be, they'd be crazy. Yeah, I mean, uh, who knows? Who knows? But, you know, I mean, Phil Mickelson being absent well, from the PGA Hall of Fame would be a real... I think, I by mean, the way, I think would Phil be noticeable. Mickelson... He may already be in the PGA Hall of Fame. I'm not sure because they have they, you don't have to be retired. You have to be like, I don't know, it's a certain number of right, years or something. never retire, right? <laughs> right. These guys never retire. Um, and actually, what's interesting, the, the reason he, he brought him up, and then let's change sports quickly, is that his comment is he won enough tournaments, I think it's 20, where he's now a lifetime member of the PGA. And he's like, well, what do you mean? Lifetime means lifetime. Like, you can't take away, you told me I was a lifetime member, and they, of course, have suspended him. He goes, how does that work? Doesn't lifetime mean lifetime member? So that'll, my guess is there'll be an interesting uh, legal aspect to what we're talking about, too. All right, guys, um, let's now move on to something that's really enthralled me. And maybe it's for a different reason than Shane, which is this hockey uh, NHL finals. Someone, Shane, you're going to explain it to me, how after game two, Seven nothing avalanche. I would have said, "Oh man, this series blowout city, abs in four. And now we're sitting here twenty four hours, forty eight hours later after game two. Now game three has been played. Six to two lightning. Abs pull their goalie. Their goalie is roughed up so bad. And now I know you're thinking. I think you're thinking the same thing I am, Shane. If the Lightning win game four, yeah, this is you know it's maybe like it's the, the Rangers on the series. Yeah, it's maybe the Rangers all over again." And, you know, uh, which, by the way, to remind our listeners, the Rangers won the first two games. The Lightning won the next four in a fairly dominant fashion. So, Shane, what's your take on what's going on in the NHL? And in some sense, an 11-goal swing between games two and three. Doesn't doesn't the magnitude of that surprise even you? As oh, our yeah. No, I, mean, well, I mean, you know, again, uh, you know, 
stat, like Stanley Cup playoffs when we're talking about seven nothing and six two. I mean, just the the amount of goal scoring again in this playoffs, I feel like is just kind of off the charts in general. And I, I mean, I, I, I shouldn't say that without having actually run the numbers, but I mean, just the amount of kind of like the, the swing and kind of, you know, the, the, the magnitude of the goal scored in each game is surprising to me. And certainly like a, a, a one game or two game swing of 11 is, is, is extra surprising. I mean, but I do think, you know, this does seize on like, I mean, I, I know, I know you, you love momentum, but hockey momentum, you know, we're sort of seeing ho- momentum in hockey is kind of a, is a very fickle thing. And I think, you know, in baseball, you often say momentum is only as good as your next starter. I think, you know, momentum in hockey is only as good as like your goaltenders feeling that day or something like that. I mean, I do think that that's the biggest kind of change between game two and game three is just, you know, Colorado's goal, goaltender did not have a good game last night. And Vasilevsky had a great game as, as he relatively consistently does, but you know, I, I, if you had to ask me for a prediction, I would still say Colorado is the stronger team and that games one and two are more representative of kind of the differential, but you know, Tampa Bay has been, you know, I mean, they haven't lost a playoff series in a few years. So I really, you know, I mean, I'm certainly not counting them out by any stretch. Yeah. I just, I just find this, that the, the reversal between, I thought, and the other thing I couldn't understand, but maybe they knew something I didn't. The Lightning were the betting favorite, actually, in last night's game. I just couldn't understand it. How are they the betting favorite? They were. They were. I mean, it wasn't a huge. They're incredibly good one. at home, for one thing. I mean, I mean, home home ice does matter in general, but I feel like Tampa Bay has a particularly strong home ice advantage, certainly over the last few years. Well, either so way, I guess- guys, I pretty. I'm pretty sure if I have the dates right, um, by the time we do our show next Tuesday. I'm pretty sure games four, five, and six will have been played. I don't think if it's a game seven, um, but I'm pretty sure games four, five, and six will be played. So we'll certainly know a lot more uh, by next week. And I think it's a fascinating series. I think it's. I I think I don't know who's going to win this series, but I'm predicting it's going at least six games. And it would would be nice to be honest, as as a kind of casual fan who doesn't have like a very strong rooting interest. I just wanna I want to see more good hockey, and it's been great hockey so far. Yep. And as our producer, Matt, that's always provides us. I was correct. Game seven would be Sunday. I know game six would be in Tampa on Sunday and game seven would be Tuesday. I mean, in um, in Colorado. All right, guys, let's now move on. Um, Since actually we were last on the air, the Warriors won the title. And I want to ask Adi something very specific about this. Adi, you've talked about the role of and we've all have about in baseball the role of salaries. And of course, you know, it's very hard for a team with a 40 to $60 million salary to compete with the Yankees at 200 million and the Dodgers and the, you know, the Mets and the Phillies and those teams like that. So Adi, do you know how much the Warriors payroll was? Now let's remember, they have a soft cap in the NBA. So let's forget their salary. It's salary plus luxury tax. Adi, do you know what the Warriors salary was in the last year? I don't. I don't even know the mean or what. The so, uh, well, the cap is one hundred. The, the hard, the soft cap is one hundred and twenty million. You pay mm-hmm. a penalty above it. It's an escalating penalty depending on how many years you've exceeded the cap. The Warriors' salary last year, all in with fee, with, with tax and everything, four hundred million. <laughs> so now, it's not really much of a luxury tax disincentive, right? Because technically, to, baseball's got that exact same system. It just somehow the 
it's it you know the owners try to get under it i guess i think the escalation is... in basketball is even higher than the escalation in yeah. baseball but my point is 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 it even fair then to think about the warriors now and by the way next year they're potentially having to sign andrew wiggins they have to sign a number of players there's talk that they may have a half a billion dollar effective payroll next year so what do we think? Do we think basketball needs to rethink things a little bit? Because if some teams can afford to have a half a billion dollars and other teams are at 80 to 100, because there is a floor also, you can't just have a $20 million payroll in the NBA, but it could be a 5X to 1 effective salary between one team and another. So Shane, what are your thoughts? Well, okay. first of all, there is kind of, there's a, there's a individual maximum too right so there is an upper bat there's the hard cap that is you know you can't you, you i mean i guess are you are, are you restricted from handing out that max salary to or you like like if a team case say for example gave its top eight players the max salary that's kind of you know that, that would be yeah, pro- i don't i, I think there, cap. i think if you're above the cap there's restrictions on signing players I don't know what the restrictions are. It's a good question. I don't know what the restrictions are about signing your existing players. Like, even though they're at $400 million, can they sign Andrew Wiggins to a four-year extension at not any amount, but up to the maximum player amount, even though that would put them even more of I think the answer, by the way, Shane, is yes. I think it restricts you from acquiring players, but not from paying your own players. Well, so, I mean, I, I guess, you know, with that, with that kind of information in mind, I mean, I do think in baseball, I always think that the, 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 this kind of disparity of a magnitude in payroll is not good, but I think it's the low end. I mean, you know, as a Fred Sox fan, of course, I'm incentivized to say this, but like, I think it's the low end teams. Like, like I think having the increasing the floor is basically going to be, I think, more productive than somehow trying to hard cap the ceiling. You know, because I mean, again, you know, unless you get a universal agreement on a hard, like, you know, the NFL kind of hard cap, everybody spends the exact same amount. And unless you're in that world, I, I feel like disincentivizing owners from trying to win right. and play, paying good players. I don't think that's the right kind of, you know, I don't think that's the right approach. I think it's really what's holding back baseball or, or making this disparity bad at baseball is that teams can kind of coast, essentially not even, you know, try and field winning teams and still collect through revenue sharing and all that stuff, still make their money. And so I think it's almost like the floor needs to kind of come up commiserate to the hard, uh, to the, to the kind of top, as opposed to the ceiling come down. And by the way, guys, just to let you know, uh, Adi, um, you're a math guy. Let me ask you a question. If I told you a team had the number one pick in the draft, the number seven pick in the draft, and the number 14 pick in the draft, you'd say that's pretty darn good, right? I would. Yeah. Well, let me tell you. Um, yeah. The Warriors, if you don't think they're here to stay, even though I understand oh, God. and Thompson are getting old. No, no. They don't have those three draft picks. But <laughs> they have three guys on their team. They do have, a, by the way, a top 10 pick. They have three guys in their team. James Weissman, who was the overall number one pick in the draft, who was injured and out for the season. He's coming back. Jonathan Kaminga was also injured. He was the number seven pick in the draft. And he's played a tiny, tiny bit. And they have Miles Moody, who was the 14 pick in the draft. So forget just all the players they have now. They have the one, the seven, and the 14. In the last two years, they're going to be healthy and joining the squad next year so if you don't think the warriors are going to be better you're nuts they're going to be much well, better than they were 
except I think for like the, the aging part of their team, they were pretty lucky this year to have avoided the injuries and stuff like that. So, I mean, the injury stuff cuts both ways. So I'll I, say I mean, they will no have guarantees. a deep, they will have, I, I was only going to say yeah. they will have a deeper team yeah. that will allow them to play their older players, less minutes and possibly allow maybe lower the probability of injury of the players that are really going to make a difference later on in the season. That's all I meant. I meant they're just going to have yeah. a deeper team that they had. I have a quick question for you, Eric. That, that that kind of that luxury task tax does that is there is there like a reset one year reset or does it take multiple years? It it takes multiple years. Okay, it takes multiple years, and it's also definitely an escalating tax where you could end up paying four x five x every dollar over the cap. Gotcha. So, guys, that has been one half of Wharton Moneyball. We've talked about hockey. We've talked about golf. We've talked about the NBA. we got MLB and lots to do. So stay with us and join us after the break for Q3 of Wharton Moneyball. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my co-host, Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen, Professor of Statistics Adi Weiner, some combination of the three of us, and our co-host Kate Massey, here every week on Wharton Moneyball, the podcast edition, right here on Sirius XM 132. So guys, um, just before we're recording our show, which is here on Tuesday afternoon, um, something just came across the wire that Rob Gronkowski Obviously, many, many years of the Patriots, last couple of years, Tampa Bay Buccaneers has announced his retirement. I'm pretty sure I have this right. Four-time champion, Rob Gronkowski, because he's, he's, he's shared all the second wave of, uh, if you'd like, he wasn't, in, obviously, he wasn't in any of the first 01, 02, or 04 championship teams with Brady, but I'm pretty sure he's been in the last four with Brady. He was. So, I mean, he technically, he, he was injured for that Atlanta Super Bowl, like for that, the playoff run that culminated in the uh, Super Bowl against Atlanta. He didn't, he wasn't in the playoffs for that, but he was on the team. Okay, but he has four rings. Yeah, he and has so four rings. I, I wanted to ask your perspective on this, uh, Shane. I think there's no doubt he's a Hall of Famer. But as you there's know, no. the foot... Okay, that's what I was going to ask you. And, and by the way, in your pantheon, you know, I love... So I won't even answer. I'll yeah. ask you. Is... Is he in the, like, if we listed, I don't want to, let me make up a number. If we list the top 20 offensive players in the history of the NFL, is Rob Gunkowski for you in that list? Is he one of the great players in the history of the NFL? Um, it's tough. I mean, probably not top 20, like off, you know, there's probably, you know, I mean, like you could come up with like 15 quarterbacks that are probably like, of, of well, more, let me ask you, you a different know, way. Let me ask you a different way. Let me inter- interrupt myself. Yeah. Is he a good, a tight end relatively? If not, how far off is he? Let's say, is he the Jerry Rice of wide receivers? Is he the Walter Payton or Emmett Smith of running backs? Is he that, is he the Tom Brady of quarterbacks? Is he that? <laughs> Good. No. Well, no. I mean, uh, yes. I mean, I think he's number one or two tight ends of all time. Uh, certainly, top three tight ends of all time. If he is number one, though, I don't think he's created the kind of like Jerry Rice and Tom Brady. Those kind of those are bad comparisons because they've created so much separate. Like they're sort of no doubter number ones in their at their particular position. I will say, I mean, Rob Gronkowski, even like he was still an active player and he made the NFL 100 team. So the NFL at least thought he was one of the top 100 players to have played the game 
Um, and, as, you know, again, because, of course, we're going to compare him relative to his position. I think, you know, he's probably he's got to be definitely like top three tight end of all time. And certainly in terms of peak, number one. And if we were talking to our, you know, one of our favorite, well, former associate producer, uh, now Wharton alumni uh, working for the Eagles. If we were talking to Zach Drapkin, would he say, you know, hey, calm down, guys. This is the tight end position in the NFL. While, yes, of course, he's great. The wins above replacement of a tight end is just it's not like, you know, this is Tom Brady versus, you know, uh, the backup quarterback. This isn't, um, you know, it's not uh, Mike Evans retiring the star wide receiver. It's not even Leonard Fournette. This is your tight end and you've got two or three other good tight ends. So, Shane, what would be your reaction to that? Well, I mean, I think I, I think the tight end is a position that's only increasing over time and its prominence and use. I think it, you know, um, I would also say that the tight end position almost, you know, I could almost counter argue that the tight end position is a very unique one because it's both kind of an offensive, like scoring position, like, you know, you act like a wide receiver, but you also act like a blocker. It's like this intermediary between a lineman and a receiver. And so when you look at somebody like Gronk and you notice, and you look at the fact that he's actually, you know, gotten, you know, sort of like, I mean, he's, he's, I just looked up his approximate value, which is kind of like the war for football for, for career. And he's in like, you know, near a hundred in that Emmett Smith is at 164. So it's, you know, he's, he's, he's kind of among the greats even, but, the, and that does not actually kind of, and that's only on his kind of receiving talent. The fact that he was one of the best blocking tight ends I've ever seen as well only kind of adds you know, I guess uh, to a certain extent, I'm arguing that there's even more kind of intangibles associated with the tight end that should push them up in our rankings as opposed to down. Yeah, the other only comment I would make as well would be the one thing I noticed when since I am a Tampa Bay fan was that when he's not in the game, especially in the red zone. You're just not going to score as often. Oh, yeah. You're just not. And so there's also, you know, as you know, uh, Shane, you don't, you know, the old expression, you don't win with field goals. Well, you take Rob Gronkowski off the field, you're going to score a lot more field goals than you did before because you're not going to score as many touchdowns. And so it would be interesting to look. I don't even know if they have a stat like this, which is, I assume you could. You could measure team red zone efficiency just as one maybe noisy metric with him on the field and him off the field. And just to see how much does he add to the you know yeah. expected number of points on the differential between a field goal and a touchdown. And I would imagine, at least again, without studying it statistically, the Buccaneers are a much better red zone offensive team when he is on the field. No, and I think it was even more noticeable uh, on the Patriots, you know, the years when he went down with injuries, they really struggled much more, especially in the red zone with scoring because he was such an amazing red zone target. I mean, Tampa Bay, I think, was more able to compensate. I mean, he, he, he was relatively healthy for most of his time in Tampa Bay. But when he wasn't healthy, I mean, you guys had like, you know, three receivers that would have been the number one in New England. Uh, so, I mean, I think new, certainly I, I did. I, I, I think a calculation like that, I haven't run those numbers myself, but I think he would stand out stand out even more than like a single top receiver. Do you ever think we're going to have a universal metric 
in the NFL that is kind of a maybe there is something that you were talking about, Shane, that's kind of wins above replacement or total value metric. I mean, I've not heard of that metric. Um, I'm not sure exactly how it's computed. But do you think we're ever going to get something like that where we could actually compare people across positions, which is obviously an eras? Do you think that we're ever going to get to that point in the NFL? Yeah, I mean, I think this approximate value is kind of we're going to continue to probably build off that. I'm not quite sure exactly how nitty gritty it's calculated either. But I think the one thing that is kind of a, a more of a, a challenge on that versus something like war and baseball is the kind of interaction effects is that it's not going to ever be able to really we're not going to ever be able to get some kind of war thing that really kind of controls for the players you played with. You know, I mean, Rob Gronkowski has, you know, I mean, well, what's the other the confounding variable? This guy that he's played with his entire career is Tom Brady. And so, I mean, you know, what would Rob Gronkowski, you know, how you compare Rob Gronkowski to Travis Kelsey, who also has a great quarterback, but a different quarterback and hasn't had it for his entire career. I, I mean, I think those kind of it, it's going to be really hard to kind of norm, I guess, performance for the people you play with, especially in such an important interaction as a quarterback and receiver. That's a great point because, you know, the other one that comes to mind, obviously, is a Shannon Sharp. Well, I'm pretty sure he played with Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers. And oh, Tony Gonzalez was also really great. And I think probably did not have quite the quarterbacking. That would have been the third one I would have mentioned. Yeah. And I agree. He did not have the quarterbacks uh, that certainly throwing to them. So let's maybe transition now uh, to baseball. Certainly with Adi and I here, we never have never sad transitioning to baseball. Um, <laughs> not I want this season to, anyway. Not, well, yeah. But so before I get to the Yankees, um, I just wanted to say one quick thing about baseball. Something <laughs> happened uh, the other day, which a positive thing. So, so the um, Los Angeles Dodgers just put up a statue to commemorate uh, the 50th year since Sandy Koufax at the age of 36 made the Hall of Fame. Obviously, not only is Sandy still with us, but he's doing extraordinarily well from all accounts, uh, but he's now 86. But of course, he made the Hall of Fame at age 36, which means he had to have retired at age 31. So my question to you, I'll start with you, Adi, is will we ever see an era again where a player is so great for a short period of time. In in, in Koufax's case, he didn't even have a great first two or three years of his career, but he was great for seven years. And I mean great. So Adi, is that path to the Hall of Fame? Do you think that will ever happen again, whether it's in baseball? You can pick your favorite sport. Maybe start with baseball and then maybe uh, elaborate with other sports. Well, you know, we had that exact question about Michael Trout some weeks ago where we asked, what if he were to retire today? Would he make the Hall of Fame? And I think all of you said unquestionably, yes. First ballot. First ballot. Uh, First ballot. Um, And so in some sense, he'd be a similar situation to Koufax. His, his arm had essentially had stopped working. And if for whatever reason, I hope it doesn't happen, Mike Trout was, you know, had a serious injury to his foot or his leg and he couldn't play baseball anymore. Um, would, that, would he still get in? I think that's similar. I think there's, a lot, there's more longevity today with great players. Um, so will it happen again? Um, probably not, only in the sense that the, the Sandy Koufax and the Mike Trouts and the, the equivalent are so rare that uh, – you know, it's just tiny, tiny pool of people who could actually put this together and, and they probably will end up having a longer career anyway. I think Pujols probably was someone who got in on the strength of his first 10, 11 years because the last, the last six or seven have just not been anything. And, and, and no one's talking about kicking him out. 
Yeah. And I think, by the way, another player like that, who I've, I've mentioned many times, I think is underappreciated first, first 10 years was the big hurt. Frank Thomas, you take a look at Frank Thomas's first mm-hmm. 10 years and phenomenal. And then last four or five, not so great, but again, 10 pretty good years ain't bad. You know, if you can hit 400 home runs and drive in a thousand in 10 years, that's going to get you somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I just no, thought it was good. Miguel yeah, Cabrera is, I think, another one that's kind of like that, you know, that sort of had a, such an amazing early career and has been sort of like, uh, you know, kind of shuffling, I guess, for lack of a better term, the last like a uh, few years. But but no, I mean, I think, again, you have to I mean, it is rare, I think, in baseball to have what you have. I mean, I think for pitchers, maybe it's going to be more common where you know, uh, you have a catastrophic injury that really cuts your career short for hitters. Usually. I mean, I, I think I, I'm, I'm hopeful that the, you know, the scenario doesn't, if, if Mike Trout gets injured such that he cannot continue playing baseball, I think he would be like Koufax. He'd be in on the first ballot just based on his record so far, but obviously we hope that doesn't happen. And it's not particularly likely it could, ha- it will happen to somebody like him to a pitcher, like to like a, I don't know what I'm not sure what the equivalent would be uh, at this point because I, I think Clayton very Kershaw young pitchers very I old think pitchers. I think Clayton Kershaw might have gotten in if his career had ended let's say four years ago I think an That's argument probably. could have been made for Clayton I think Kershaw probably and probably right. the, and by the yeah. way I will say with a tear in my eye um, he was there at the ceremony for uh, Sandy Koufax and they had a picture of the two of them together and that would be the only pitcher that I can think of in the modern era in the last 30 or 40 years that I put at that such a dominant level for a five or six years the only one that comes to mind is Clayton Kershaw well but Pedro, I, I, know you... I think Pe- Pedro at the time oh Pedro the yeah, day, yeah, yeah 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 I'm sorry I keep, I, I, I keep forgetting he had, who had probably the greatest maybe the greatest season ever for a pitcher um Pedro you're right you look at Pedro's career I think he pitched for over 15 seasons but let's be clear no I'm not taking anything away first ballot hall of famer but he didn't have 15 great seasons no and you know no, he was first ballot based on the peak entirely not honest and that's kind of and I got no problem with that because his yeah. peak was a great peak Adi I know you yeah, want to jump in his peak was incredible but you know Kovacs took himself out of the game and today's uh, world he probably would have gotten medical treatment he would he wouldn't have been abused the way he was over those years you know it's, it, you have to recognize that the the factors that led to a a, a shortened career like that just don't exist anymore and and so that's that's one other issue one other name that I wanted to throw out is someone who also had a short career relatively um, and that was Joe DiMaggio he retired at like 35 or 36 years old after missing three seasons to uh, World War II um, and wasn't aimed played 13 or 14 years. It wasn't the 21 or 22 that, well, Williams had, took him, had missed five years uh, to, 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 uh, to war service. But guys like, you know, Willie Mays played 20 plus years, uh, year after year, Hank Aaron, 20 years plus years. Uh, and, and, and in fact, Joe DiMaggio also had illnesses that probably could have been treated as well. He just was having foot problems and, and just couldn't, couldn't get out of it. And he's like, I, I'm, I'm going to retire unless I'm, if, if I'm sub great. The players today, they'll continue, even if they're not as extraordinary as they were. Yeah, actually, I think Joe DiMaggio is a, is a great uh, is a great one, you know, because people always look and say, wow, the guy only hit whatever, I think 361 home runs. Yeah, mm-hmm. he only played 11 seasons or 12 seasons <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, yeah. you know, he, uh, again, and I, I, I'm, I'm always glad when you talk about Ted Williams, because if he hadn't missed essentially five seasons, let's be clear, 700 home runs. And 4,000 hits for Ted Williams if he plays those seasons. And I don't think there's no disputing it. 700 home runs and 4,000 hits for Ted Williams if he plays that full career. There's no no doubt about it. I wanted to switch over to the Yankees now. Um, So 
maybe you've looked at this statistically, Adi, but just as a fan, which both of us are huge fans, and maybe and Shane, I'd like your reaction after Adi's. <laughs> why does this year? Why does this? No, no, no. The Yankees always have a big payroll. They always spend a lot of money. Why does this year seem different? Is it because their pitching is better? Is it because they seem to have a balanced team? Like it's not like two really good hitters and seven guys that you can pitch around. Why does this year seem different? Let me start with you, Adi, and then Shane, for someone who's, you know, maybe not a Yankee fan, looking at the Yankees, what do you see? So, uh, Adi, let me start with you. Well, first and foremost, it's five healthy starters. Just right off the bat, five healthy starters all basically pitching the way they're expected to pitch. And some, of course, much better, starting with Nestor Cortez. Where the hell is going on there? Um, So that's number one. Number two, it is a pretty deep lineup all the way through. Um, Even And and there has been production from people which we didn't really expect too much from. Um, But it's, you know, the batting average in the league is so darn low right now. It's like 231. And and Yankees hitters are all substantially over that. Um, with maybe one or two, with the exception of Joey Gallo, I think, who's producing not at all. And he was a, he was a big free agent, uh, well, trade pickup in the middle. So, and and of course, it's the it's the extraordinary performance of this enormous bullpen, um, which has also been essentially uh, impossible to hit. And that's the Yankees have done this on the strength of giving up the fewest number of runs in baseball, just topping down in their in their in their rotation. And then having really good, not the best hitting, but really good hitting, and put those two together, and it's dominant. How do you yeah, see I mean, things? Dave, How do you think, Shane? Hey, and, and by the way, Shane, yeah. even if you let's say you agree with I, the other thing, I want your reaction to is even if you agree with everything that Adi said, what probability do you give the Yankees to win the World Series? <laughs> <laughs> well, right, right. No, I mean, okay. So, I mean, I mean, because they're on, uh, you know, I, I think that Seattle Mariners like you know, 1998, it was in 1998 or whatever was, is that the, that's the cautionary tale, Dude. right? That, Cause that's yep. the, the Yankees aren't even quite on their pace yet uh, anymore. Right. Or I, I guess maybe they are still on their pace, but no, they're on that pace. They're on that pace. Uh, I mean, you know, the Yankees look absolutely dominant. I mean, they're n- number one team in the majors and whip and number one team in the majors and OPS plus they like, you know, that doesn't usually happen in a single team. I mean, not to, and I don't want to take anything away from them, but I guess I will with these comments. I think the number thing, one thing Adi, Adi mentioned briefly, injuries. They've avoided injuries in a way that Yankees teams, I, I think I think Yankees teams in the last few seasons were really good too. They just were had so many injuries. And so, so let me you, ask you a question. You at, if, we, if we had a specialist on, would they recommend, listen, um, you know, listen, why don't you guys forget about winning 120 games? Win 110, rest judge, rest Stanton some, maybe even give pitchers a little bit of time off. You know, would you, I mean, if you're thinking about injuries being the, maybe the major source of uncertainty right now for any team, but certainly a team Mm -hmm. like this, would you recommend Shane that they maybe, you know, even now, I know it's only a third roughly of the season in a little more, should they be optimizing injury prevention at this point, or it's way too early for that? No, I mean, A, because I think injuries are still random enough like that, that I don't think, you know, like load management. I mean, yeah, I don't I continue to like make sure your pitchers don't throw 150 pitches per game or something like that. I mean, do do the usual things that all teams are doing for load management now. But no, I don't. I mean, 
given that, you know, the two or three other, you know, there's three other kind of playoff contending teams in the same division, even though the Yankees are thoroughly dominating right now, I would not take my foot off the gas at all. Cause I do, I, you got to expect the girl to come back down to earth a little bit, just record wise. Maybe, I mean, if not, the not, but like, you know, I, I think they, if, if they're like up by 15 games at the start of September, then you start talking about maybe low, like more, more kind of extreme load management, but I don't think until then. You know, no, I, it's interesting. It just, it seems to me that that load management in baseball, maybe in sports in general is one of the great untested, but widely used treatments, if you will. No one's out there trying to measure this or try to figure out, yeah. does it really work? And the counter argument, I mean, who wants, who's, who's against And exactly rest? how to um, measure it, Adi. And as you yeah. said, exactly how to measure. Is it the number of days off? Is it the number of pitches? Is it the yeah. number of at-bats? What yeah. exact, how do you measure cumulative wear? And, and, and I don't even, I mean, it's funny because I keep trying, so I, I keep pushing this idea that these things should get tested. And the obstacle to testing that is that there isn't a coach or, or, or a staff out there that's willing to actually implement the experiment. Yeah. You either they do it, but they won't do it in a way that gives you a, a, a genuine control group. And we as analysts are sitting here just desperate for someone eventually to do what we beg, which is try to implement some kind of some kind of experimental a protocol to see whether something is real or not. And yeah. I, I would love to see that happen um, in, in any sport, but particularly when it comes to load management, certainly in baseball, we don't know whether this works. And there is some data that suggests that it, maybe it doesn't. We do see for example, when a player, and there are confounding factors, we know uh, sits, uh, is DHing, they do worse than when they play in the field. Now, that could be because they DH because they're not feeling well. <laughs> you're right, not playing yeah, them yeah, because yeah. they're tired. And so you're just, you're just observing a, 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 a confounder. But it could be, it's still a possible, plausible theory, that, that when you play or in the game and you play regularly and, you're, and you stay on it, you, 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 your skills are refined and honed and, and, used and, and, and ready um, for the highest uh, – level of play and that when you sit a lot you get a little dull and maybe that's just a non-player talking um but that's a reasonable hypothesis yeah i think i know oh sorry go ahead shane please i was gonna say on the pitching side of things i i feel like it's you know i mean where did these historical conventions of five star you know five days rest all this type of stuff come from i assume there's an accumulation of kind of knowledge that happens over generations but it could also just be that arbitrary rules get codified you guys remember the joba rules a few years ago, remember Joe Chamberlain? <laughs> oh he yeah, came up. he was he was such a phenom, and they had these very specific. He's only going to pitch sixty pitches this game, and he's only going to go up to like they had a whole Joba schedule and Joba rules. And I always wondered at the time whether any of that was analytics based or whether that was just somebody kind of you know some coach with an Excel spreadsheet just sort of making it up. It's the latter. (laughs) All right. So I just wanted to ask you guys. um, So what do you think is, again, what do you think is going to happen this season? I mean, do you think that the Yankees are going to be able to not even just hold on? I mean, what do you think? How likely are they to win the World Series? I mean, what would be the upper bound you would give it at this point? Uh, Let me go first. As a Yankee fan, I'd love to say greater than 50 percent. But as a statistician, I'm going to have to say less. Then 50 winning the World Series is less than 50%. I think they'll get to the World Series with probably 60 to 70% probability. Um, but winning it, I mean, they still have to win two series, right? Yes, they, they, yeah, they have to win a lot. So even I even, mean, even to getting to the World Series with 60 or 70%, now you're starting to really push the probabilities of either both of those series. Uh, you know, they'd have to have like an eight, 75 80% chance of winning both those series. 
Let me ask. Yeah, you, I know. I, I think I know what your answer. You guys are disagree, going to be. by the way. Do, are you are you are you guys think it's greater than fifty percent? No, no, of, no. Of winning okay, the World Series, not even of making it. To no, the no, yeah. no. Right, not so even of making yeah. it. Not even of yeah. making it. No, no. I don't even give them a fifty percent chance to make the World Series. No, I, that's too high. That would mean they're well over seventy percent to eat, win each of those first two series, or you mm-hmm. know, some combination yeah, like yeah. that. And I, I think that sounds too high uh, to me as well. So let me ask you guys. Maybe in the last minute or two we have in Q three, um, what do you think is do you adjust your estimates at all? You know, I'm a momentum guy, but I'm also a historian. The Yankees have won one title in the last 22 years. One. Convenient cutoff. Well, no, no. <laughs> no, no. No, no. I, it's not. All right. So they've won five titles in the last 25 years. They've won a bunch. But yeah. here's my point. Is yeah. that worth anything to you, Shane? No. Like, as you're thinking about where to put their odds for this season. The fact that uh, they haven't won a title in 13 years, 14 years. Is that worth anything to you? Or just no, I don't want to hear this Yankee haven't had great recent history. This I don't in the playoffs. I don't want to hear any of that. No, I don't think they've become very, they, they've come very close for the last few years and had some bad luck or bad performances. That's kind of how it happens in baseball. I mean, it, no, I mean, I wouldn't read anything into that. I mean, again, you know, most, I think only Yankees fans would be like, oh, well, this is like some kind of crazy streak of like, you know, underperformance or something like that. And I guess relative to payroll, maybe you could talk about that way. But I think, you know, it's just really hard to win the World Series. Adi, yeah, no, yeah, no, no, fans no, had it too easy back in like the 50s and stuff. Like I know that. us superstitious Yankee guys want to say it's a huge effect. But Adi, what do you think? No, I don't think it's any effect. I mean, it easily could have been at least two, 2001. We'll forget that one for a moment. Um, and, you know, there, there's luck involved. I mean, even even yeah. if things are just neutral, to what they made how many appearances in the playoffs since then? At least. Oh, they've like, come within like an hour of like the World Series several times. Sure. Last, so, like, you know, you know, you know things five just. Five years. Break, things break different directions, different times. Yeah. I don't, I won't carry it over. No, not at all. But it's harder, well, guys, and, harder this, than hard and ever. Right. Yep. That, there's more teams, more teams sure. in the playoffs. Yeah. Yep. Well, guys, that has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. Uh, quarter four is our interview segment. We're going to be talking to Ben Lindbergh in uh, Q4. So everyone, please stay with us and join us right after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. All right. Welcome back to quarter four of Wharton Moneyball. This is Adi Weiner hosting our show here. Um, which is rec- being recorded on Tuesday. We'll be airing it on SiriusXM on Wednesdays, and it'll be downloadable on our podcast at any time. Um, I'm joined by Ben Lindbergh, and who is a wonderful repeat guest at our show. He's a longtime friend. He's been a senior editor of The Ringer, and he is one of the co-hosts of a terrific baseball podcast called The Effectively Wild, um, which has always been in one of my podcast repertoires for, for some time. He's the author of two terrific baseball books, The MVP Machine, and the only rule is it has to work, which is a is actually, in some level, the stat heads follow up to the original Moneyball. If you want to really dig into Moneyball and how it actually takes transpires on the field, that is the, the book. In fact, Ben, I, I teach a course um, called Moneyball Academy, right? Essentially teach statistics using entirely sports data and the pre-season, if you will, uh, prerequisite that is to read Moneyball. And because so many kids have already read that and they want to know what they should read next, the book that I, that I suggest is yours. And that, that's, the, that's the, the, essentially the follow-up um, book. So welcome to uh, Morton Moneyball, Ben Lindbergh. It's great to have you. 
Good to be back. Thanks for having me and appreciate the future royalties potentially. (laughs) Okay. Well, we have a lot to talk about. This is one incredible baseball season. Um, I will say just as a, as a, as a fan, this is a wonderful season for me. I'm going to get right out there and just say it. I'm a Yankee fan. And this is, (laughs) this is the year of all years so far um, in my, in my lifetime to be a Yankee fan, beating even that, you know, those great Yankee teams of the late nineties, at least so far into the season. Um, baseball also is, uh, is such a historical game with such conservative um, and, and sort of timeless aspects of it. I've been treating baseball as my personal great escape from all the insanity in the, in the world at large. I feel like I can drop myself into a baseball game, either on the radio, or on TV, or at the park, and feel like I'm a kid again, and it's 1978, and things are just nice and controlled and, and happy. I don't know how other people feel the same way about it. But why don't we start off by, by just asking you general questions. What do you think of this, this year's baseball season? I think there is sort of almost an extra pleasure that comes with it in the wake of the uncertainty with the lockout that really dominated the offseason, right? We weren't sure whether we were going to have a season or when that season would start or what it would look like. So there is almost a a grace period where I kind of count my blessings that we've actually gotten a full schedule. And so that alone, just just to have it, you know, after having the shortened season in 2020 and all of the compromises and conditions that have to be put in place. The fact that this is a semi-normal MLB season that is actually transpiring on the schedule that we expected, I think that is something to be happy about. And obviously there are a lot of interesting storylines with players and teams, but hey, it's nice to have baseball at all. All right, so speaking of you know incredible storylines, why don't we just talk about two of, the, two of the things that are really huge right now. One of them is incredibly low sort of offensive production. Do you want to summarize, if you will, to to our listeners, like what you think is the 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 principal agent driving that incredibly low historic performance? Sure. Well, there's been a lot of focus on the baseball itself and the behavior of the ball because MLB did deaden the ball slightly. Now, it's not a dead ball. It is deader than it has been over the past few years, but the past few years were historic in terms of the home run rate. So this is just normalized a little bit. And actually, the offense has picked up a bit since about mid-May. You would expect some of that with just the weather warming up, but it also seems as if possibly as a result of the fact that there are humidors now in all 30 ballparks where the balls are being stored under consistent conditions. Perhaps there were some unanticipated effects because of that early in the season. And for whatever reason, things have picked up a bit. So if you looked at the April numbers, it looked like we were back in the dead ball era. Since then, things have bounced back a bit, which I think is good. But, you know, it's not just the ball, really. It's a prevailing problem that we've been talking about for years. And whether the scoring is actually low or not, I think it's the shape of the offensive production is the offensive environment it's strikeouts being up it's fewer hits and there are all kinds of causes for that I mean maybe defense is better but to me I think pitchers have just gotten better right and some of the the tools that are available to pitchers these days have improved them probably disproportionately and now you have pitchers throwing harder than ever they're throwing nastier breaking balls than ever And it's just a lot for hitters to catch up to. And I don't think they can. So I've talked about various potential solutions to that. But (laughs) I want to just mention one thing about the pitchers, because certainly high tech and statistics has really benefited pitchers. And you've written about that and people have talked about that. I have actually former students who play this role where they stay, they work with the Rapsodo machines and they sit in the bullpen helping the pitchers. 
Um, why has there been nothing comparable on the batting side? Or if there has been, how come it hasn't kept up? If that's the explanation. I mean, I think, yeah. Shane, what Sorry, do you, I, you, I, I'll just kind of throw out this one yeah. kind of comment. Pitching is proactive versus whereas hitting is reactive. So I think there's more you can do as a pitcher, I think. But the, right. that's just my yes. own kind of very glib comment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that is one of the, the common explanations. I think every time there is some sort of advance when it comes to technology or information, often the defense, the run prevention is the first to harness it. It is, as you said, hitting is reactive. A pitcher can just decide I'm going to throw this pitch and here's how I'm going to throw it. And a hitter is always kind of on the back foot a little bit, just responding to whatever the pitcher decides to do. So there's not as much of an intentionality to it. Which isn't to say that hitters haven't benefited from some advances and and couldn't benefit more. I mean, there are innovations in pitching machines that are doing a better job of replicating the way that pitches actually move and allowing you to practice against more accurate representations of what a pitcher actually looks like, for instance. So that can be helpful. Or you can get instant feedback in the batting cage based on your swing, and you can get all kinds of data about the trajectory of your swing and the mechanics and the movement of your body. And we know more about batted balls and what the optimal mechanics are. So there are things that hitters can do, but it's always kind of this pitcher-batter balance of power, this cat-mouse game. And often pitchers will take a step, and then hitters have to try to catch up. Uh, Let me ask you about, uh, there's an article about Aaron Judge, who seems to be just hitting the cover off the ball. He is the MVP currently in, in, in the, certainly the American League. Uh, you disagree? Shane's making a face. Uh, but I, I, mean, think it, uh, yeah. I, I didn't realize Mike Trout had already retired, but all right. <laughs> uh, nevertheless, no, I do think uh, uh, um, maybe we can ask Ben Lindbergh, uh, what do you think? Uh, currently, who's having a better season? I think I'm giving my, the, uh, the, the nod to Judge. Um, but uh, before you answer that, he has talked about using computer simulation tools to helping, helping his, his, his uh, productivity. So what do you think about those two things? Yeah, uh, teams are using VR to train, you know, before mm-hmm. they go out on the field, before the game starts, they will slap on a headset and they will take some practice swings against the pitcher that they're about to see. So I think those things can be helpful. And the Yankees have really made some strides seemingly across the board when it comes to hitting the ball more often in the air and hitting it harder. They have a new hitting coach this year, Dylan Lawson, who has been very data-driven. He's mentioned in my book, The MVP Machine, I believe. So I think there is something to that because their personnel hasn't changed dramatically since last year, but their results really have. As far as who's having the better season, it is really close. Those guys are neck and neck right now. I think if the season were to end today, I think Judge would win. For one thing, he is on the far better team. He's going to be on the playoff team. Trout, as always, is languishing on the Angels, who yet again are out of playoff position as we speak. And of course, Judge is making a run at the American League record for home runs of the season. So that has gotten him a lot of attention. And it's a walk year for him. He's about to be a free agent. So there are a lot of eyes on Aaron Judge. And maybe his season has been a bit flashier. But Trout is just miraculous year after year, right? He has had some trouble staying on the field of late. But whenever he has been on the field, he has been as good as ever. And in fact, by some metrics, at least he's having the best offensive start to his career this season, even though he's already been a three-time MVP and would be a Hall of Famer if he retired today. So Trout is unbelievable, incredible. There's no 
limit of super, superlatives you can apply to him. Unfortunately, <laughs> the rest of the team <laughs> hasn't quite. Well, actually, it's yet. funny. Uh, the, 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 the Angels were looking very, very good for, for the first were. quarter of the season. And then all of a sudden they had this epic uh, losing streak. And my, my ask, question about Trout, is Trout, Trout the defender he once was? He used to be, no, a, you know. Yeah, probably not. Uh, and that has maybe sapped his value a little bit. But, you know, there were some conversations uh, this spring. Joe Madden, the now former manager of the Angels, he broached the idea of moving Trout to an outfield corner, talking to the media before he had actually addressed that with Trout, which was not the way that you want to go about that. And that didn't happen. But I think he has perhaps lost a little speed and a little bit of defensive ability. But he has, if anything, become a better hitter as he has aged. And just being able to play a competent center field, if not a great center field, he is still just immensely valuable with that kind of offensive uh, performance. Yeah, no, just to put a couple numbers on it, his current war for at least according to the kind of baseball reference war is uh, for this season is 3.8. 3.6 of that is his offensive production. 0.2 of that is his defense. So he's still a plus defensive player, but that the vast majority of his contribution is offense now. Interestingly enough, J- uh, Aaron Judge seems to be playing the majority of his games in center field, which to me seems very yeah. odd. He doesn't have the kind of speed that that even Trout still does. Um, and yet they're doing it. What, what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, the concern with, I think, a lot of the Yankees outfielders has been keeping them healthy, right? Judge and yeah. Stanton, they have been and somewhat... Yes, they have been prone to injuries and, and that has sort of held them back offensively. So really the fact that Judge has just been on the field has been a big part of how much he has done this year. And they have had that hole in center field for a little while now, right? They had Brett Gardner, who's now gone. They've tried to make it work with Hicks, who has often been injured or, or underperformed. And so they have finally just decided we're going to put the Giants out there and we'll see how it goes. And thus far, it's worked out OK, but really... All of those big slugging outfielders they've had, Judge, Joey Gallo, even to some extent, Giancarlo Stanton, especially earlier in his career, they are probably more talented defensively than you would expect, just given their stature and given their status as sluggers. Those guys can actually field. So as long as they can stay healthy, they're not actually giving back all that much on defense. Well, I mean, Judge is actually an excellent, certainly a super plus right fielder. It just seems to me that as a center fielder where where speed is so much more important and the amount of ground that you have to cover is more important. And just being able to be reach over the, over the, the center field wall is much less useful than being able to reach over the right field wall, wall <laughs> to stop a home run. Especially that just, right field wall where yeah, it's like right, 320 right. feet away or whatever. Yeah. Not, not quite, but yes, uh, your point <laughs> is well taken. Um, so that, that I just think it's also quite a, quite a, um, a challenge. Almost it's, it's the second hardest position on your body for catcher overwhelmingly the first and you wonder whether or not that's just good for the long run for Aaron Judge or even Mike Trout to be playing center field because it is such a tiring position but what I wanted to actually move to next is uh, you actually have a wonderful article um, talking about the size of the pitching staff which is something that is really fascinating Um, and you had an interesting take on it in and so why don't I let you explain what you're actually recommending what's what's happening in baseball and maybe you can tell us what you're recommending and why. So another potential culprit behind the lack of offense this year has been seemingly that pitching staffs are big and rosters have expanded as a result of the pandemic and the shortened spring training. Rosters were bigger to start the season and there was no limitation on the number of pitchers you could carry. And so 
most teams were carrying 13, 14 pitchers at least, if not more, right? And they were just running fresh reliever after fresh reliever out there. And hitters weren't getting to see the same pitcher multiple times within the same game. There was always someone new coming along. Now there has been a lot of conversation about limiting the number of pitchers who can be on an active roster at any one time. And MLB has kicked the can down the road a couple times, but now finally has put that limitation in place where the most you can have is 13 pitchers on an active roster. Now, that's still a lot, historically speaking. <laughs> you know, there used to be many fewer pitchers than that on the roster at any one time. But now at least there's some move toward limiting that. And perhaps that could be extended in the future and the bar could be lowered. And there's a lot of conversation and dispute about this because on the one hand, people will say, well, pitchers are getting hurt left and right. We want to take it easy on them. We don't want to overstress them. On the other hand, we have moved more and more and more toward pitchers having lighter workloads. And that hasn't seemed to dispel the injuries that we're seeing. And I think one possible reason for that is because pitchers are constantly pitching at max effort. Now Mm -hmm. they used to pace themselves, right? Because they knew, okay, I have to go deep into this game. I can't throw all out on every single pitch. Now, you know, you can, right? Because if you're a starter, if you go five innings, your job is done basically. And if you're a reliever, you're only expected to go an inning at a time. And so I think almost counterintuitively, what we've ended up with is lighter workloads and yet possibly as much stress or more stress on pitchers' arms. Because one of the big injury risks from various studies we've seen is that when pitchers throw at the top of their personal velocity range, that really taxes them and puts more pressure on their arms and more strain. And so I think that if we were able to limit the number of pitchers on an active roster at any one time, and you would have to phase that in slowly and gradually, but if you could do that, I think it would address a lot of problems with the game today. Well, I mean, but it would have to be, I don't see how going from 14, I mean, it's not, I, I don't see how this at all, maybe you're just kind of arguing this is one very incremental baby step in this direction, yes. but like, it's not going to limit at all the kind of Tampa Bay Rays strategy of just having a reliever throw a different reliever, throw their hardest each inning for nine innings. Right. I think it is a, sort of a landmark just in terms of the principle of things, just because there's never been any restriction on the number of pitchers you could carry at any one time. And so to put that in place and say, you can only carry this many, even if it's a high bar, I think that sets a precedent that you could then perhaps lower that bar in future seasons. And I think if you could, if you could get it down to 12, if you could get it down to 11, I really think that would go a long way because you would have pitchers who were then pacing themselves, which might help with all the injuries and might also help with the offense because pitchers would not be able to throw max effort all out on every pitch. They would have to take a little something off. They would be more hittable than they have been. So I think that would address a number of issues potentially in one fell swoop. I, I think it's a highly nonlinear. I think going from 14 to 13 will bring a benefit, but going from 13 to 12 will be a bigger benefit and from 12 to 11, even in bigger. So I think really the point is the principle of it starts on the right path. Right. Um, and, and we really need to get on that path. And but the thing is, this is possible because the, you can get 11, 12, 13 pitchers that are all worthy of playing. If, if we roll back time, back to the 70s and 80s, when you got to a, a, a team's bullpen, you think, okay, now we're, now's our opportunity. And, mm-hmm. and in contemporary play, that, that just isn't the case. The bullpens are deep and their quality, even into the ninth, 10th, 11th man on, on the league. Right. 
and it's kind of created a new class of pitcher because if you have a mm-hmm. pitcher who is only expected to throw one inning at a time, then that pitcher only needs two pitches. Let's say, you know, you come out there with a, a good fastball and a slider. That's all you need to face three, four, five hitters at once. You don't have to see them multiple times. You don't have to show them different pitches and mix things up as you go. And so there's just a deeper pool of potential talent out there. So if you limit things so that managers have some incentive to say, hey, no, you have to come back out there after the inning. You have to actually face these hitters multiple times in a game. It's not that I want to tell anyone you don't get to be a big leaguer anymore exactly, but I think we've just seen this endless parade of pitchers. And the other issue is that when you use that many pitchers within a single game, of course, that makes the games longer, right? You have more pitching changes, especially mid-inning pitching changes. So you talk about the length of the game and the pace of the game. If you have pitchers going deeper into games, then you potentially have fewer pitching changes. And I think there's just a... An, anonymous class of pitcher now in bullpens where even if you're a fan of a team, you might not know who these players are. You might not know anything about them because it's just reliever after reliever with these sort of, you know, interchangeable skill sets just stacked one on top of another. Whereas in the past, you had a starter who could be expected to go deep into a game and you could, they would be the protagonist of the game. You know, they'd be the, well, you, look for, you could actually look at the paper and be like, Oh, I'm excited to go to this game right. because so-and-so is pitching against so-and-so now it's like, Oh, I'm excited to go in this game. I see a bunch of random people. Yeah. Maybe they, maybe they, you know, maybe I will heard their names. Maybe I won't. Right. And you could follow in, you know, even within a single game, you could watch the pitch count climb and say, okay, they're going to get this guy into the bullpen, right? They're going to knock this guy out of the game. And you might see that pitcher facing the same hitter three or four or five times and having to adjust as the game goes on and show them different pitches. I mean, they're taking that all out of it. These storylines. Yeah. The other other thing I will say that's really helped the pitchers, I think, and it's something that we could get rid of even more quickly is uh, framing, pitch framing. By the uh-huh. catchers. And yeah. I mean, like the number of times I've seen, especially the Yankees catchers are so good at cab- pitch training. They are. <laughs> they have stolen so many extra sort of strikes for their pitchers. And honestly, this, this is, I mean, it's basically, it's kind of like an acceptable form of cheating that we could just get rid of instantly. Right. In a way. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm kind of conflicted about it because I do appreciate the art of framing. I mean, there is a real skill to that, that catchers oh, yeah. practice. Yeah. Uh, there's a real sc- enjoy- There's a skill involved. There's an art and skill to stealing pitches too. No, sure. you know, but let me let me before I uh-huh. hear what you say. But I think one of the things that's happened is we've accepted very low offensive productivity from catchers because we've recognized they provide defensive productivity more yeah. above and beyond what we used to think of, of what they're providing. I mean, okay. Yankees tossed Sanchez because he was terrible at everything defensive, despite having a good bat. And and I think it's part of the game. But but Ben, what do you? That's, think? I mean, it doesn't have to be. I mean, that's no, like it, basically it's saying like. Getting to falls and strikes wrong is just an inherent part of the game. It's not. It doesn't have to be. Robo yeah, ump. I, I mean, bring in robo umps. We would have no pitch. You know, we would have no catcher framing. Catchers would have to get good at offense again. You know, <laughs> to be sustainable. Or maybe they wouldn't even have. Or maybe we wouldn't even need to have. Yeah, you know, I mean, guys, we we'd still need them for plays at the plate and kind of uh, right. like balls and play type purposes. But we wouldn't need them for that very important aspect of their current jobs. We could get back to offense. Yeah, catching has always been a low offense position relative to others, except for maybe shortstop, let's say. So even if you took away that, you'd still have higher defensive demands than you would at a lot of positions, but definitely 
the emphasis would swing more toward offense, which again, I enjoyed the art of receiving and framing and just being able to watch someone who is smooth back there and catches the pitch in such a way that they're able to subtly tug it toward the strike zone and pull the wool over an umpire's eyes. But I know that's a niche thing. You know, I'm in the minority there as someone who really appreciates that aspect. Of well, the- I mean, I think it's the same argument. I, I it's, it's, it's along the lines of the same arguments like, oh, we can't get rid of umpires. They're just like, that's part of the beauty of the sport that they get calls wrong every once in a while. Well, the, the, the main problem is we have some umpires who are absolutely horrendous at it. I actually think the umpires are overall pretty good. Oh, and they've um, and, gotten far better, I should know. Yeah. You know, we're more aware of their mistakes just because we have the strike zone. And just because we have the right answer now. We have a way of actually getting <laughs> exactly, the right answer. Right. We can see where the pitch was more or yeah. less, and we can look these things up after the game. They've gotten way better than they used yeah. to be because there's so much more oversight and standardization, and they're actually graded based on how they perform according to these systems, right? And so they get those that bit of feedback after the game and they're able to adjust their zones. Now you could say, well, let's cut out the middle. This seems like a lot of work when we've got the right answer to start with. If if we're going to grade the umpires (laughs) based on the computers, then just use the computers. I I understand. uh, First of all, I think we aren't quite as certain how accurate the computer strike zone is. Remember that itself is an estimate and it's set the height of the, of the, of the, of the bottom of the strike zone, the top of the strike zones are set by operators. Um, And there is some uncertainty. Consistent throughout the game. Okay. And, and, and secondly, I mean, this is, this is certainly there's a subjectivity and there's a, a timelessness of baseball, which this would, would change. But I want to, we only have a, a few more minutes. I wanted to ask Ben really something which we started to touch on, which is pace of play. Um, and if you point to one of the biggest, I think probably the single biggest contributor to the absurdly long games that we have today relative to where they used to be, say, in the 80s, um, the single most, there are many things that contribute to it, but the number one is the time between pitches. I think there's a wonderful baseball perspective article that kind of broke it down. Um, but I, I sometimes will fast forward a game that I started or I missed the first hour of it. And I use the 30 second button on MLB. And that seems to be about the median time between pitches around 30 seconds because they'll, they'll throw one and then I'll click the 30 seconds. And usually about half the time I've missed a pitch and about half the time I have it. They, the pitchers just seem to walk around that mound. Um, is there anything they can do about that or is that just – part of the game and it's also is it part of them just restoring some energy because they they just dump so much into their previous pitch yeah they're working on it i mean that is at the top of mlb's list of things to try to fix and in the minor leagues this year and for the past few years they've been testing pitch clocks that have been getting more and more aggressive so they're now down to 14 seconds with the bases empty and 18 seconds with someone on base. They've been testing that this year and it has seemed to make a major difference. And so that seems very likely to come to MLB potentially as soon as next season. Now, I don't think that they'll be able to get as aggressive a pitch clock in place immediately. And so I I don't know that we'll see as huge a a time savings as one would think if they can't go for the full aggressive version that they've been testing in the minors. But certainly that is something that MLB is all on board with. Players have resisted to some extent, but at this point, most players, even in MLB, have been exposed to the pitch clock on some level when they were in the minors or elsewhere. So it's not a foreign concept, and I think it will be coming sometime soon. But there is a, a performance-enhancing effect to taking longer, right, whether it's just the physical recovery or the time it takes to game plan and think about what you're going to do with your next pitch as a hitter or a pitcher. But that will absolutely be coming, although I should note that there are also more pitches thrown than there used to be as well. It's not just that there's a longer time between pitches, but that there are also more pitches for various reasons. So 
that might tell you that even if you had the same pace you used to, you might not have the same time of game. Although the more pitches are thrown, the more time you could potentially save by trimming time off every pitch. Yeah, and I mean, I think it kind of speaks, uh, it's, it's similar, I think, to what you were talking about with the posi- number of uh, pitching, like limiting the number of uh, pitchers on, on on a roster. It's kind of like mm-hmm. you bring it in with a not particularly aggressive thing and you just kind of incrementally right. improve. Because, I mean, pitchers are pitchers and batters are going to need time to adjust over the next few seasons to an actual kind of pitch count. So you wouldn't want it to come in like too aggressive to start with. Right, yeah. And, you know, you see sometimes players will have feedback like, well, I, I feel rushed. You know, I don't like this. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, that that's the point. <laughs> you know? Or you bring it in at the same time. They're exploring some new ato- uh, technology to try and prevent pitching stealing. And it's just a lot sure, to sure. try and keep track of at once. Yeah. You want to be sympathetic to the players. I mean, the players are are the product, really. They're the entertainers. And so you don't want to do anything that is going to get them off their games or or risk injury or anything like that. But there is a certain amount of discomfort that maybe is necessary or even desirable when if you implement a pitch clock and the feedback from the players is this is too fast. You know, I, I want to take longer. It's like, well, yeah, that's why we put the pitch clock in place in the first place. So <laughs> that, that, That's great, Brent. We have just about 30 seconds left. And I wanted to leave you with a question that we discussed in our third quarter of our show, which is what do you think the odds are that the Yankees will win the World Series? Just want to calibrate our own forecasts. Oh, gosh. Well, if you go by the Fangrass playoff odds, I bet they're at about 15% now, which wow. might sound low to people, even if they've been the best team in baseball this year. It's just that you have a 12-team playoff field now, right? That's and right. It's so big. So many rounds and so much randomness that really... Point flips are basically the baseline. Yeah, exactly. All right. So, you know, that's so about very low. It's interesting. 20%. I mean, I'd love to yeah. I'd love to d- digest that fan graph still doesn't think the Yankees are the best team in baseball because they shrink back to preseason right. forecasts. But that's a great number. And I want to thank Ben for joining us. And this has been our fourth quarter of Word Moneyball. I want to thank our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, our our producer, Matty Datz. And this has been a great week to talk sports, talk statistics and have a great week, everyone. And we'll catch you next week on Wharton Moneyball. Moneyball.